This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, or TEEB, is a global initiative focused on making nature's values visible. Back in early July 2023, the United Nations Development Programme in Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei Darussalam, or UNDP Malaysia for short, unveiled the results of site-level economic valuation exercises conducted in three protected areas in Malaysia – Taman Negara National Park in Pahang, Kelantan and Terengganu, the Royal Belum State Park in Pera and the Andar Rumpin National Park in Johor. Now, the study estimates that ecosystem services of Taman Negara, Royal Belum and Andar Rumpin are valued respectively at over 1.7 billion ringgit, 531 million ringgit and 428 million ringgit annually and was aimed at developing an evidence base for increased finances and investments for terrestrial protected area systems in peninsular Malaysia. So today on the show, I'm joined by Niloy Banerjee and Gunpek Chuan. Niloy is the UNDP resident representative for Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei Darussalam. And Pek Chuan is the head of Nature, Climate and Energy, also at UNDP Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei Darussalam. They're going to break down the results of this study. And we're also going to discuss why it's so important to put tangible numerical values on habitats and green spaces. Welcome both of you. How are you today? Very well. Thank you, Juliet, for having us. Yeah, good afternoon, Juliet. Yes, thanks for having us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. So I was really excited uh, when I saw the uh, results of this survey. You know, I mean, putting that value uh, on these protected uh, spaces, right? Really something that we've been talking about a lot on the show. Um, maybe I've, either of you, we could start off with just giving a brief overview of the uh, TEAB initiative, right? And its main goals uh, in the context of Malaysia's biodiversity and ecosystems. So look, uh, globally, the conversation on valuing biodiversity has begun a few decades back. And very recently, the UK government uh, commissioned a big study uh, done by Professor Partha Dasgupta of uh, Cambridge University, which is quite a seminal study on sort of uh, valuing biodiversity assets and resources. Uh, It's called The Economics of Biodiversity. Highly recommended reading. it's it's went on to spur for us this thinking that why should we not be thinking about this, mm. that the global conversation is happening. Malaysia is a mega biodiverse country. Uh, so why don't we put uh, this exercise into action where we actually put a value on econom- economic value on forests, nature reserves, ecosystems as a whole, and see it as a productive asset, which then goes on to change the conversation in policy spaces, in the narrative of the people. It goes on to help design better policies and fiscal transfers between federal, state, state, local, etc. Mm-hmm. So that kind of uh, spurred us. And UNDP also, as you said, has a global initiative on this. Uh, so we had the wherewithal, we had the methodology, we knew how to uh, do the counting, if you like. Uh, we had uh, access to the expertise, including local expertise. So it all came together and Malaysia has these protected areas where these exercises can be, these models and simulations can be run very well. Mm -hmm. So it all came together and here we are. And were you surprised by the sort of valuations that came out, those figures that I mentioned, right? Or do you think that's perhaps, oh yeah, what what, what were your thoughts when you you saw that? I'm not surprised at all. Uh, Like I said, in 1997, when this conversation first started, there's a guy called... uh, Robert Constance, who 
valued, who put out a number of $33 trillion of global value in biodiversity and, and ecosystems uh, uh, reserves. And it became a hot topic of conversation. He, he was questioned uh, whether it was, how did he come to that number? And uh, it's still called the Constance Debates. <laughs> okay. <in> the, <laughs> how did he come to that number? And then he, there was a group that attacked him that it was too low. It mm. wasn't realistic. And there was a group that said, well, this is highly inflated. So uh, I'm surprised uh, the methodology could uh, actually come up with even higher numbers if we ran it, for instance, uh, across other protected areas in Malaysia. Mm. But also imagine if it could be done at a smaller scale, you know, your little community park and what is the value of the, of the, uh, what is the value lung, right? of the, exactly. Yeah. So uh, I think it's, I'm not surprised. I, I would actually think it's, uh, uh, we could do even better and measure Malaysia as a whole yeah. and, and convey that. Yeah, it might be a bit of a moderate actually estimate, right? I mean, yeah. considering our biodiversity. Um, Pekchon, maybe I can ask you, right? So how did you guys, how does the team actually approach the challenge of valuing those ecosystem services, right? And also biodiversity, uh, especially in a diverse and ecologically rich country like Malaysia? Yeah, we, we all know that Malaysia has done a lot. A lot of researchers or even lecturers, you know, has done a l numerous economic valuation on forests in Malaysia. And when we have the opportunities to approach and bring in the TIP approach into Malaysia, we knew that we can't be emulating the same. But of mm. course, we draw the lessons from the previous economic valuation exercises. And in view that in peninsular Malaysia, uh, we have three very large scale and significantly, you know, biodiversity very rich protected areas, which is uh, the Royal Balloon State Park uh, in Perak, and then Tamanagara that spans over three states, Panghang, Terengganu, and Kelantan, as well as the Antau Rompin uh, National Park. So, which is why we targeted the three main, the three largest uh, parks in uh, Malaysia, mm -hmm. and. We started when we started to do the design and the methodology using the TIP structure approach. Because if you look at the TIP uh, approach that has evolved over the years, you know, is first you need to recognize the value of nature. Mm. And second is to demonstrate this value. And third is to capture these values into decision-making process. So which is why it's very important that we need to recognize, demonstrate and capture values that are important to people living and surrounding these three main protected areas, as well as, you know, those that are not indirectly affected, you know, or may be benefiting from the ecosystem services provided by the protected areas, which is why when we designed the survey, you know, trying to do the data collection, we specifically have four target groups. Mm. One is on the Orang Asli communities, second is the local communities, um, and then third is the tourists, okay. and fourth is the general public. Uh, in order to make the sampling, you know, you need to have the results that's representative and uh, in terms of statistically, you know, uh, significant. So we also aim to at least uh, have 300 respondents from each target groups, from each protected area. Mm -hmm. So in the end, I think we quite got quite a good response size of sample size, which is about over 4,200, you know, 
respondents okay. from all these target groups. In view that you know most of the surveys was actually during the MCO period, <laughs> yeah. Which is quite yeah. a challenge, yeah. Because the project started, what, towards uh, the end of 2019? Um, did I get yes, that right? Yes, and then correct. Yeah. Right up till, what was it, 2020? 2020. Okay, yeah. okay. So very challenging times. Very <laughs> challenging time, in fact. We have, we, because of the, you know, during the lockdown, during the COVID period, mm. we, we couldn't, you know, the team couldn't go down to the site, have the face-to-face interviews. Everyone is on like... So we we sort of like have to wait for a while, waited for a while, let some, you know, there were in between periods, you know, during mm. the MCO. Okay. So then only we organized the face to face and uh, and and supplement whatever there is, a, you know, gap, which supplemented with online survey. So when you approach this, right, obviously you had, you know, some methodologies uh, in place already, right? Maybe you just want to briefly talk about what exactly it is that you asked, what is it that you were, the data that you were actually trying to collect and, and, and gather? So, uh, of course, if we are targeting like, you know, like the Orang Asli and local communities, we, we run a household survey mm-hmm. too, to really gauge. And we also develop a, a set of questionnaires that are... Uh, they start off with certain pricing, an indicative pricing of whether the respondents is willing to pay if, if you think the protected areas uh, would like to protect more wildlife or if you think the protected areas is able to regulate, you know, prevent floods. So we sort of like, uh, sort of like you know, gauge the different type of ecosystem services provided by the protected area and ask certain very specific design questions and give them a choice, you know, give the respondents, the target group a choice to choose, which is their preferred choice. If you like to have the protected area to uh, have more wildlife, then what would your, what would your choice? If you like the protected area to have more flood regulation Mm. services, then what is your, you know, so this is uh, some of the examples. Okay. Yeah. To, to gauge, you know, the value perception of different people yeah okay and and of course the findings you know as i mentioned earlier i mean maybe i can get either of you just to remind our listeners you know so what what were the estimates that the ecosystem services of those three protected areas what was the figure given for each of those three so the total economic value i think as uh, you mentioned earlier is for Damanagara, the total economic value is uh 1.7 billion per year but if you break it down into different types of ecosystem services then you will see the largest value actually comes from the carbon storage. Ah, okay. I mean, for Damanagara. But the same, if you look into Royal Balom as well as uh, and Andarombin, the same. The ecosystem services in terms of carbon sequestration actually carries majority or the highest values of all the ecosystem services. Then it follows to uh, like other system, other services like forest conservation, uh, you know, like biodiversity conservation, and uh, the other areas is also tourism. Mm, mm-hmm, also mm-hmm. carries a lot of economic valuation. So let's take Royal Balloon for for an example. So Royal Balloon, its uh, tourism uh, value, I mean, in terms of its economic values, is about seventeen millions per year. Wow. Yes. So if you cross-reference with the current entry fees or any tourism activities charges incurred by the Parastate Park Corporation, then you may, 
you know, obviously there's room for review. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So similarly with Damanagara, I believe now the entry fees is about five ringgit per person for Malaysian. Non-Malaysian foreigners, I think, is about 10 ringgit or 20 ringgit. So, but the tourism economic values that we calculated through this TIP study actually amounts to 43 million ringgit Malaysia per year. Mm. So that means no small in, value there, yeah. Yeah. in other words, that we may not have fully leverage on the economic value from the ecosystem services, mm-hmm. you know, from yeah. our protected areas. Yeah. yeah. And you know anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I think Pechon's making a very important point. Uh, the methodology, uh, at the macro level, it looks at uh, the cost of maintaining a protected area. So patrolling uh, uh, to staff to manage, etc. And then the cost, an opportunity cost as well. What if that protected area was used for something else? Mm-hmm. And then juxtaposes that against uh, benefits. And the cost-benefit ratio is always in favor of the benefits. That's uh, rigorously modeled. Um, and then at the more micro level, it, it takes three parameters, really. It's looking at uh, what you would call uh, provisions from the forest, uh, medicinal plants, uh, honey, for forest, uh, you know, food products from the forest, construction material, atap. Uh, uh, so these are these are valued. Uh, at the second level, it's in, in the uh, the, the second parameter is uh, what the literature calls regulation, but in more layman's terms, it's the carbon capture. That, And the other thing that we undervalue forests for is uh, water management. Mm-hmm. If all the forests in your upstream were cleared out, uh, the you know, the ability of the soil to absorb the water is much lessened. It runs off and floods are a natural, and I'm bringing in the topic of floods because it's so topical in Malaysia right now. (laughs) Definitely. So the flood prevention is a huge imputed value. And then carbon sequestration is, is, you know, completely under leveraged market. You know, that feeling of opening the window in the morning and breathing in that fresh air. Somebody has done that work for you, (laughs) you know, and that's there's an economic value to it. It's like motherhood. You know, you have a pressed uniform in the morning. You have a a lunchbox packed (laughs) when you're unwell. But if you had to put an economic value, if you had to get all of these services commercially. Correct you would be paying a lot of money. So this was the pro- point. you know. And then there's a third sort of parameter, which is the cultural parameter, yeah. which is, it's a bequest. It's A, there's beauty in it, but also it's a bequest to your future generations. So that too, we put a monetary value on, mm-hmm. add all of this up, and it comes out to, but yeah, it then leads to what Pechan is saying, a whole different set of policy choices. Yeah. You, The uh, policymakers who are all well-intended can make those choices based on, you know, you value the oil in your sea, you value the tin in the in, under the ground. Why won't you value this asset? So the motherhood thing is not too facetious, actually. Mm-hmm. It's something that's so available for free and efficiently. We don't put a, we don't put a value on it. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. I want to come back. I just want to go for a quick break. I want to come back and talk about those policy recommendations that the report does have. Uh, I'm speaking today to Niloy Banerjee. He's the UNDP resident representative for Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei Darussalam. And also Ganpek Chuan, the head of nature, climate and energy also at UNDP Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei Darussalam. We're talking about enhanced effectiveness and financial sustainability of protected areas in Malaysia. This is in relation to a, uh, a report that was just released, uh, which you know put a figure actually on the uh, on ecosystem services of three protected areas in Malaysia, Taman Negara, Royal Belum and Darumpin. We'll come back after this quick break to discuss those policy recommendations. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. In the studio with me today, Niloy Banerjee, the UNDP Resident Representative for Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei Darussalam. Also with us today, Gan Chuan, the Head of Nature, Climate and Energy, also with UNDP Malaysia. We are talking about a report that uh, UNDP Malaysia unveiled and was the result of site-level economic valuation exercises conducted in three protected areas in Malaysia. So those areas uh, were Taman Negara in Pahang, Kelantan and Trengganu, Royal Belum State Park in Pera and Andar Rumpin National Park in Johor. So, you know, huge figures, right, that the, the study estimates uh, are valued for those ecosystem services in those three areas. So we're breaking that down. Before the break, you know, you explained how the methodologies were and all of that and why this is so important. And of course, you know, very, very importantly, we want those policy implications and recommendations, right, as always uh, that comes from studies like these. Uh, what are the some that you can share from the three sites? I understand the report. I remember reading like they had specific recommendations for each, right? Uh, maybe you want to uh, help elaborate on that for Yeah, very broadly speaking, what it does is if you're a policymaker, it helps you put a monetary value on a particular asset and you can then make policies that service this asset exactly as you would say service your car or your house and keep it well maintained. Uh, So as a policymaker, when you're choosing where you allocate your annual budget, you're able to make a very hard-nosed decision that this is an asset I need to maintain, mm-hmm. I need to keep servicing my car, uh, and therefore you're making that allocation. Second, it gets away from the notion of uh, a subsidy, that this is something free and we are just subsidizing it to keep it alive. That's that's absolutely not correct. It's an economic asset which you're uh, valuing for what it is worth and then you're treating it as an economic good, just like I said, it was with other commodities like oil and gas or tin or uh, uh, anything else that uh, that you value as a commodity. Uh, it shifts the narrative among the public. Uh, the, you know, uh, current and future generations begin to see it as a, as a valuable asset which needs to be protected. Yeah. So that uh, change of narrative is, is also equally important. Then fourth, it uh, leads to knock on policies. So you then begin to put, you know, if if uh, forests are under, land is more or less under state jurisdiction, then federal could choose to compensate or provide an incentive uh, to, to states to protect and conserve, which then becomes, in this case, the ecological fiscal transfers policy, which is a kind of a knock on from this, this uh, idea. Or, for instance, the value of forest produce, mm-hmm. which is often extracted for medicinal purposes or food purposes. Honey I, is the one I like to uh, illustrate <laughs> with. You know, honey is a forest product. product I know yes. it's now cultivated but, yeah. artificially, but uh, but there's so much value in, in that, that natural so exactly. Uh, honey. Yeah. So uh, then you begin to uh, price these uh, products, 
for what they're worth. Uh, and therefore, another policy, knock-on policy that comes out of it is what we call the access and benefit sharing, which is when you extract f uh, forest material, genetic or uh, commodity, you compensate the local communities or the guardians of that asset. So that's also now policy law in Malaysia, mm. that you access and benefit sharing, um, as is ecological fiscal transfer, which it's, it's policy. The government for the last two successive budgets has been making uh, allocations to ecological fiscal transfer and quite uh, with quite a dramatic increment between the first and the second, hopefully uh, uh, an even more dramatic increment in the third. And finally, as Pechon was saying, pricing signals. It sends out, it corrects uh, incorrect pricing. Mm -hmm. uh, the entry fee to the to the national park, to the uh, protected area, is clearly underpriced compared to what is uh, what it is generating. So it it, it it's actually correcting a market uh, market failure, uh, a wrong pricing signal. Okay. Okay, and and Petron, you know, you want to go uh, a bit more, uh, I guess, a micro in terms of you know the policy recommendations and some of the yeah some of the recommendations from yeah the adding on to Niroy's, you know, which, which is very well summarized in terms of few very broad policy blocks. So if you look at more micro, I think immediately I think the tip already built a very strong economic and business case mm. for increased financial investments to maintain and manage the protected areas in Malaysia, I mean, Peninsula Malaysia, although the samples are in Peninsula Malaysia, obviously the same can be applied, you know, in Sabah or Sarawak. So obviously these, of course, Malaysian government has already started allocating the ecological fiscal transfer, but we all know this is like, you know, an annual allocation, but still subject, you know, to to how the state government come up with initiatives or projects according to the guidance and criteria prescribed by the Ministry of Natural Resources, Environment and Climate Change. Uh, obviously, if you look back into other practices across other countries like Brazil, China, or even Portugal, uh, the ecological fiscal transfer allocation is supposed to be you know, acting as an incentive or catalyst where the federal transfer certain funds or grants to the state government, then the state government should have the spending autonomy to mm -hmm. decide where should they target these allocations. That means there should be, you know, not too much uh, prescription. Correct. Yeah, prescriptive criteria, but you should add it with some autonomy for the state government. And we ought to mention currently the allocation, the annual allocation for the ecological fiscal transfer is still considered, you know, quite small if you compare uh, to other countries. Even, you know, India spends like billions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Billions. So, huh? yes, okay. billions. So, Malaysia is only about in the range of 150. Of course, there is a very positive trend Oh, from 2019, started off with only a very modest amount of 60 million ringgit in Malaysia, and now it has increased to 150 million. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this provides an opportunity for, for the federal government you know, to really look into all the other intergovernmental transfer because intergovernment tra transfer in Malaysia is not new. They are assisting like special allocation to certain states based on population, based on, you know, maintenance of road <clears throat> and others. So is there any way we pack package all these with fully recognising, demonstrating and capturing 
the economic values of this nature. Yeah. Protected areas mm-hmm. as part of the overall package of special, you know, of, of federal to state allocation, rather than you know you set aside another ecological fiscal transfer only, you know, on ecological criteria. Mm-hmm. Can we have an overall package that you have both the economic, social, and environmental criteria? Okay. The other policy recommendation, which is more towards on how we start looking at the development planning, we all know that Malaysia, when it comes to certain development projects, we will do EIA, Environmental Impact Assessment. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's also time for us, you know, to start really looking into the process and also the different aspects of EIA. I think the biodiversity and the nature value should be, you know, taken fully and recognized that if, let's say, the project is going to have a huge negative impacts on the nature, obviously, we can't just have a mitigation or management plan to address it. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, uh, in recent, I mean, we all know the recent case on the Dioman Airport, Dioman, yes, airport which is actually a very strong signal, you know, a position that uh, adopted by... Uh, by the federal government say we should make a stop because the environmental impact is just far too greater for us to to ignore you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah um so how can we actually get the incentives right then right i mean for for efts to actually work you know in a sustainable manner what would be some of your recommendations and Anina? for me uh, if i may make one recommendation to the government of malaysia it is to take uh, the the question of pricing carbon very very seriously I don't want to wade into the internal debate about fossil fuel subsidies, etc. But Malaysia has a huge, huge, huge potential in carbon markets at the first at the regional level and eventually at the global level. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malaysia is a very small emitter of greenhouse gases, uh, less than one percent, right? Zero point eight five of uh, global greenhouse gases, which means Malaysia can earn massive carbon credits which it can sell to carbon-intensive countries. Now, if you look at the valuations that in our, in our publication, uh, the, others, the other areas of valuations look like little townhouses, and this one, carbon sequestration value, is like a Petronas Tower. <laughs> it's really, the graph is uh, very... High, yeah? mm-hmm. So it's an under-leveraged resource, so I would say that Malaysia moves into at least a regional carbon trading system. I, I know there's efforts at a domestic uh, emissions trading system, but you know, domestic will not generate the kind of revenues that will make it a robust uh, line of uh, income, mm-hmm. which can then be redistributed, uh, whether from federal to state or uh, from a thematic area within the conservation space to, to protecting, say, Mal- Malayan tigers mm. uh, as much as uh, protecting hectares of, of forests. So um, I think it's a, it's a, my my one. If I had, if I could choose one policy recommendation, I would say Malaysia take the issue of wade into uh, regional carbon markets and because it'll make a. To use the street lingo, it'll make a killing, okay. which right. which will free up many resources for for others. And there is an entry point, given that the ministry recently has you know commissioned 
the drafting or formulation of the National Climate Change Act, Correct. which serves, it could be served as a legal instrument to start you know, regulating or designing a carbon market or car, start with a carbon pricing. Uh, for example, you know, if you look at the Singapore case, uh, even though we all know that Singapore is not exactly a carbon sink, they don't jet, <laughs> but they have, you know, sort of like stick, take a more, more pro- very progressive step by mm-hmm. imposing a carbon tax. Mm-hmm. So that start off the carbon trading market in, in Singapore. Okay. So similarly, I think as Malaysia, as you say, you know, we are providing so much ecosystem services in helping the world to store the carbon. So why not? You know, we start uh, pricing our carbon, make it a more viable market. Of course, obviously, uh, Malaysia as standalone country, we may not yield enough, you know, big enough scale and volume of carbon to be traded. So which is why the regional carbon trading scheme may work, you know, at least start with the ASEAN level. Because mm-hmm. yeah. currently that is not happening, right? No, it's because, uh, uh, I mean, there are challenges. There are methodological challenges. Different countries count differently. But also who pulls it all together, who assumes leadership, and therefore who pays for the initiative. Mm. These are some outstanding questions. But I think the ASEAN market is ripe for for a sort of a localized, uh, you know, sub-regional carbon market. And you've got two massive emitters on your two flanks, India and uh, China. China. Uh, not to mention uh, some carbon-intensive economies within ASEAN as well. Mm-hmm. So, th- th- I mean, it's you can't have a lower-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the met- there are methodological and political challenges, obviously, but it's something to really think about. Okay, could you you know share some examples where you know there has been this sort of innovative like policy recommendations, right, and and initiatives, uh, maybe inspired by TEAB as well, right, which have actually uh, been successfully implemented and has actually successfully balanced economic growth with environmental protection. Have would there be any examples that you could share with us? There are some examples where you know the TEAB has really informed. Uh, at the global level, for example, as you know nowadays, because uh, because of the Dutch Group's bar uh, review on the economic values as well as the TIP mm-hmm. generated by led by UNEP, you know the UN Environment Program and several UN agencies, including UNDP, uh, they sort of like you know trigger and also influence and uh, motivated a lot of uh, intake and also the way the financial sector operate themselves. Okay. So lately, there is a say, you know, task force uh, established, you know, for climate or nature financial disclosure, uh, aiming to target the financial institutions. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, to help them and support them to start investing more resources into nature or climate positive initiatives. So this is a start. So the task force on climate uh, positive or, you know, investment disclosure, financial disclosure was set up about three years ago, while for the nature one, I think they are just setting up this year. Yeah. So even Bank Negara, they have already uh, launched and issued a very clear taxonomy, you know, on the type of financial investments. So these also serve as a quite a good foundation, Mm -hmm. you know, to support any financial institutions like, you know, local banks or even foreign banks, how to influence their, you know, start looking into investing or divesting, you know, their resources away from carbon intensive mm-hmm. or 
nature negative or in nature, you know, that can affect or impact the nature negatively. Yeah. Okay. And would you also uh, be able to, I mean, I guess, you know, what opportunities, uh, you, you mentioned financial institutions, right? But what about uh, the private sector practices, right? Can, you know, these findings also influence them and encourage businesses, for example, to, uh, I guess, adopt more sustainable practices, uh, resource use, biodiversity, conservation, those sorts of things? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, when I was saying in the the narrative within the public needs to change, I include civil society at large. I include the uh, private sector. I include uh, you and me and others. Okay. Uh, it's uh, the private sector could also self-audit uh, and offset uh, by actually participating in converse, uh, conservation efforts. So, yes, private sector could do it. It could give them a very strong market-based signal, which, you know, it's nothing airy-fairy. It's a strong market-based economic signal that if you do this, this is what you can, these are the credits you can buy and therefore offset some of your uh, carbon-intensive or greenhouse gas-intensive practices. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I don't just mean private sector in the corporate sense. I could, I would also include the agricultural sector yeah. I, because also a big emitter. Yeah. So because the agricultural sector anyway has a, symbiotic or uh, at least they cohabit each other's uh, with with protected areas so um, I think the agricultural sector would do well to think of how uh, reforestation for example or mixed forestry for example get into practices that would uh, offset and th th there are mathematics and economics for that it's mm -hmm. not uh, just a uh, story being told. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and those figures are important, exactly. isn't it? it? That's sort of like, you know, it's the proof in the proof of the pudding, I suppose, they, if yeah. you want to use that. Um, but there are still challenges, right? I mean, despite it sounding like, yes, low-hanging fruit, right? These are simple things that we can, uh, we can uh, you know, implement straight away. What are the challenges that remain? You know, why are we not seeing this happening at a larger scale? Um, yeah, what, what, what do you think are some of the barriers that still exist? I think the main barriers would be institutional barriers, you know, or... Mm -hmm. uh, you will need to start having, you know, different ministries work across ministries, yeah. work across agencies. If you can't be just driven by a ministry or agencies dedicated for environment right. to drive the narratives, uh, it needs to be really fully mainstream and fully integrated, like in some of the core ministries, like Ministry of Finance or even the Ministry of Economy, that that looks into macro planning. Yeah. Similarly, I think because state government also has a similar sort of like governance structure, so the the state economic planning units and also the state treasury units also must fully you know recognize this value, start you know start capturing them into the decision makings when they do budgetary planning for the five year Malaysia plan mm. or even the annual budget cycle. So this is the start. Yeah, okay. and you also need to have. Uh, we don't ask the, the the finance officers in the Ministry of Finance to know all the economic values to understand the economic valuation methodology. But at least you know there should be a uh, at the back of the mind you know already all the certain projects. You know this year we should allocate this much. You know more incre in, increase increase uh, budgetary uh, allocations because 
protected areas, conservation is so important, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned in the intro that you had the launch in July, right? You, know, you had an event and there was, you know, a, a very imp- uh, important and very insightful uh, talk that happened after that, right? And that was on EFTs, right? What were some of the highlights or some of the points that were raised uh, by the attendees? You know, I, I heard it was a very, very robust conversation. Yeah, I think one of the areas is that obviously everyone welcome about the EFT allocation, mm-hmm. but at the same time, they are still struggling and then they are facing a lot of challenges mm-hmm. uh, in terms of accessing the allocation and more importantly, how to fully utilize and targeting the right initiatives and the right beneficiaries. So that's the main, you know, a lot of challenges highlighted during the forum, okay. during the panel discussion. Uh, and we also, there were also some practitioners like the finance officers from certain state governments that share their experience. They're saying that, you know, there's still a lot of room for improvement. So they give us a lot of guidance and advice saying that, you know, even administratively, the EFT allocation could have been categorized as a revenue for the state instead of the current categorization as a development budget Mm. or development expenditure for them. Because the current classification uh, doesn't enable them, only enables them to look for existing projects or new projects related to biodiversity conservation in order to utilize that allocation. So you in a in in short is there is a limitation yeah, in terms of assessing. But if the federal government actually transfer the EFT uh, allocation and classify them as a revenue to the state, then the state actually has more autonomy to decide where they should direct and target those resources. It's really important, isn't it? Exactly. So even though it was all with well intention, very good intention, definitely a very, very strong positive signal by the federal government. But if you do not work and look into some of these, you know, nitty-gritty, I would say, Mm -hmm. uh, details either administratively, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, you may defeat your original purpose of having those allocations. But it's helpful because this kind of feedback, because it it helps uh, certainly Ministry of Finance, but overall Ministry of Economy and others to also start ironing out the wrinkles. Uh, any any major initiative like this starts out with uh, wrinkles and, and warts and what have you, which you have to slowly. Uh, so this feedback loop, I think, is quite uh, helpful from from particularly from the state level. And I think eventually we'll have even more feedback from the protected areas themselves. Uh, We will have more feedback from citizens and the person on the street. And I think so the model will, I think, I'm quite very confident, will eventually get more and more refined, more sophisticated, you know, iron out the wrinkles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And won't just be for protected areas, is it? Or it will be just for, like you mentioned? I I would think it's 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 done for protected areas because it's a manageable, it's a boundary managed exercise, if you like. But it could, it could happen. You could do a community audit in your community. What's the, what is the value of the biodiversity resources Mm. in your, you know, localized, hyper local uh, community? And, and, And this kind of begins to generate engagement uh, uh, children and young people get involved, excited, and and uh, hopefully that also leads to regeneration and reforestation, mm-hmm. uh, reclaiming green spaces in our cities uh, uh, with urbanization gone crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. Another feedback actually that was highlighted during the panel discussion is uh, because. The EFT allocation is considered as a special allocation under annual budget. 
speech, okay. which is why, and there is no legal framework currently to uh, to specify what is actually the source of revenue that runs that provides the EFT allocation. So, so which means the EFT allocation, as in his current form, uh, is not instituted in a way. Uh, in a current law or a new law. So it all depends whether the government, uh, that means is subject to influence, mm. subject to any external influence. Let's say, you know, if Malaysia economy is not doing very well next year. So the alloc- allocation may not be maintained as 150 million in future years, mm-hmm. or you may reduce or you may be, yeah. Completely and you also subject to political influence in future, let's say, you know, if you have a change of government or different leadership, you know, yeah. Okay. But I mean, that's where the TIP report also comes in. It's very important. I mean, it is, it is used, it can be used as a policy document, right, as well. And you have, of course, presented it uh, to, to the ministry, the relevant ministries as well, right? Yeah. Um, what's what's next for uh, well, for that then in terms of like, how are you going to expand it? Because you mentioned Peninsula Malaysia. Uh, is this also something that could be done also in Sabah, Sarawak, perhaps? Uh, yeah. What are some future plans for it? Yeah, exactly. Take it local, take it um, uh, beyond just the protected areas and bring in new instruments of financing this, uh, you know, the cost for this, uh, like EFTs and access and benefit sharing uh, Mm. revenues. Uh, Again, I hark back to what Malaysia could uh, earn from a, a local a regional carbon market, it could easily it could easily fund the scheme at a much EFT scheme, for example, at a much more ambitious scale. So, taking it local, changing the financial architecture of this, uh, and taking it to a point where it's not seen as a burden on on the exchequer, it's seen as a revenue generator for the exchequer. Mm-hmm. You know, when you say biodiverse countries like Malaysia and Indonesia are the lungs of the world. That's in economics, that's what it means. That you're sequestering carbon for for the world or the region and you're giving out uh, fresh air uh, in your morning walk or when you open <laughs> your windows with a cup of coffee in the morning. Okay. So that's this is an embodiment of that uh, sort of uh, economic, in economic terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in essence also Malaysia should start using this, you know, the, the results of findings from this report in their engagement in the global conversation. Mm. For example, in terms of helping them to access uh, funding or potential resources from the Green Climate Fund or even the you know Global Environment Facility, some of the international funds available. Uh, given that there's COP27 where there's a talk about loss and damage fund, which they're going to set up, as well in the recent COP, the CBD COP15, where they say they're going to set up a dedicated biodiversity fund. Yeah. So given that we already done this, if we are possible, if government is going to support, to do an overall team for the entire Malaysia, including Sabah and Sarawak, I think we should use these results to really advance Malaysia and say, you know, we are helping the world to keep the forest, to provide you the fresh air, you know, clean, clean, uh, provide you the clean water. Yes, it's time, you know, to use this, that Malaysia should have more of these resources, you know, to act as a catalyst to change the way we work, you know, to do the just transition Mm -hmm. to help us to protect this world heritage. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, both of you, uh, for joining me today. Any concluding message you'd like to leave our listeners with before I let you go? 
I don't know, our forests, our, our biodiversity, our iconic species, all are worth saving. And, uh, and they're not, uh, not a burden. They're actually uh, revenue generators. So mm -hmm. let's value it that way and let's uh, make the most of it by, by actually creating the financial mechanisms that will not only pay for themselves, but also pay, uh, contribute to the Malaysian economy. Mm -hmm. And kept intact, isn't and it? Kept right? intact, yes. indeed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I think, uh, my father, I mean, the last word would be, I think, making the natural value uh, very visible in uh, how we live and how we act. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me today. I was speaking to Niloy Banerjee and Ganpek Chuan. Niloy is the UNDP Resident Representative for Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei Darussalam. And Pek Chuan is the Head of Nature, Climate and Energy also at UNDP Malaysia. Uh, we were talking about the report Enhancing Effectiveness and Financial Sustainability of Protected Areas in Malaysia. Of course, you know, folks, if you'd like to read that report uh, or to read all about the good work uh, that a UNDP is doing, just head to their website. That's undp.org slash Malaysia. But if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.